The text for my message this morning comes from Apostle Paul's epistle to the Galatians. Specifically, I ask you to turn to Galatians 4, verse 1 through 7. Galatians 4, verse 1 through 7. I appreciate the fact that these verses were read earlier in worship service. Nevertheless, I think it's important enough to hear the reading once more. Galatians chapter 4. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of, of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. You may be seated. This passage is one of the most elegant expressions of incarnational faith in the New Testament. The doctrine of incarnation teaches that the eternal Son of God became human, that he did so without diminishing his divine nature in any manner or degree. Jesus was sent by God when the time was right to serve as an agent of redemption and adoption. As the believer is redeemed and adopted, he or she can call God the Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, Abba, Father. And through the grace of Jesus Christ, Believers are heirs of the kingdom of God. I've selected for a sermon topic this morning the good news, the good news of the incarnation. The good news of incarnation. Christmas is going to be different this year the father proclaimed during an impromptu family meeting. He then challenged his children to be more disciplined in the management of their time during the busy Christmas season, to curtail excessive spending on gifts. And he even talked about relationships between visiting relatives and a more congenial atmosphere around the house. And after a while, he brought his 
speech to a climax. With a final rally cry, let's make this the best Christmas ever. And then he asked, are there any questions? His middle school son quickly raised his hand with a sense of bewilderment. And he said, Dad, I don't see how we could improve on the first Christmas. That statement is really the central theme of this sermon. How can you improve on the first Christmas when a virgin teenager named Mary gave birth to the infant God? How can you improve on the first Christmas when a star led wise men from the east to the birthplace of Christ so that they could worship him? How can you improve on the first Christmas when an angel proclaimed the news to a group of shepherds For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. How can you improve on the first Christmas when an angelic choir sang glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men? I submit to you this morning no matter how special the gifts you receive this Christmas, No matter how good the food you will enjoy, no matter how warm the fellowship you experience, this day can never measure up to that day when Mary gave birth to the Son of God. In fact, your celebration of Christmas will ultimately be meaningless if it doesn't flow from your understanding of faith in and gratitude for what happened on that first Christmas day. If you don't acknowledge, if you don't embrace, and if you don't reflect upon the true meaning of Christ, you will miss the beauty of this day and the clutter of trees and then gifts, parties, food, and so on. The good news of Christmas is forever tied to the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the incarnation of Christ is succinctly explained in the creedal statement that we read from Galatians chapter 4. Verses 4 and 5 are so important. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. These two verses affirm four aspects of the good news of the incarnation. And let me give those to you, four aspects of the good news of the incarnation. The timing of the incarnation is good news. The source of the incarnation is good news. The manner of incarnation is good news. And the purpose of the incarnation is good news. 
The first promise of Jesus, the first promise of the coming of Jesus, is found back in Genesis chapter 3. Speaking to the servant after the fall, God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offsprings and her offsprings, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Centuries later, in Genesis 12, God promised Abraham that he would have a son. And through his son and his descendants, all the earth would be blessed. And then when we come to 2 Samuel, that seventh chapter, God promised David that he one day would have a son who would sit on his throne and who he would reign forever. Would ring forever. The Bible says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son. But the reality is most people miss the miracle of the moment. Most people didn't recognize the significance of Christ's birth at the time. People were too busy to pay any attention to the young girl giving birth to her first child out in a stable somewhere there in Bethlehem. At just the right time in history, Jesus was born. The coming of Christ into the world was not a matter of chance. It was not a matter of coincidence. His coming was part of God's divine plan. A plan that was established before the foundation of the world. Historians tell us that the Roman world was in great expectation, waiting for a deliverer at the time that Jesus was born. You see, the old religions were dying. The old philosophies were empty and powerless to change men's lives. Strange new mystery religions were invading the empire. Religious bankruptcy and spiritual hunger were everywhere. God was preparing the world for the arrival of his son. And from an an, an historical perspective, the Roman Empire had helped prepare the world for the birth of Christ. You see, the roads had been constructed that connected city to city making it travel much easier. All roads ultimately lead to Rome. The world was at peace under Roman rule. Roman laws protected the citizens and Roman soldiers guarded the peace. Thanks to both the Greek and the Roman conquests, Latin and Greek were known across the empire, making communications possible with many from all over the world. The Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah, these prophecies were completed. At just the right time, 
God sent his son. The incarnation of Jesus took place according to the sovereign timing, prudentially orchestrated and perfectly scheduled of God. Christ was born in the fullness of time. Jesus was probably not born on December 25th, though we may, not, we may never know the exact date of his birth. But the fact is of so significant that it split history into B.C., and into A.D. The life of Christ is the hinge of history. Jesus is the blending of deity and humanity. He is the intersection of earth and heaven. He is the meeting place of time and eternity. The Bible affirms that he invaded history in the fullness of time. The right time, the appointed time, it was a time of prophetic fulfillment. It was a time for religious favor, international peace, moral decline, and cultural harmony. In the fullness of time, God sent his son into the world. The incarnation was no last minute solution for sin. It was not hastily thrown together as a rescue mission. It was not too early, not, neither was it too late. It was a fullness of time. So the first bit of good news proclaimed in the incarnation is that God's timing is perfect. Because God is God, there are no such things as accidents. Nothing just happens. Everything happens according to God's sovereign timetable. God's timing is perfect. And he proved that ultimately by sending his son in the fullness of time. Let me make a footnote here. Jesus will come again. Jesus will come again in the fullness of time. Acts 17, verses 30 through 31 tells us that the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising that same man from the dead. Second yes, Peter 9 says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but they all should reach repentance. Yes, and then when we turn over to Revelations chapter 22, we find these words. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my reward with me to repay each person for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus is coming again in the fullness of time. The source of the incarnation is good news. Yes, 
in verse 4 that we just read is the central clause of this sentence. It is a statement that tells us much, how much the incarnation costs God. God sent forth his son. That phrase, sent forth, translates a, a, a Greek term that we refer to the act of sending an army off to war or commissioning a person for some duty. But Paul used it here to speak of the source in the of the incarnation. God sent forth his son. That statement assumes the preexistence of Christ. That is, Christ is co-equal and co-eternal with God. When a savior was needed to be man's substitute, God sent his son. And the source of the incarnation is good news because it tells us when a savior was needed, God supplied what was needed. In fact, he gave his very best. He gave up his own son. When Adam and Eve ate us out of a house and home, God didn't send Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. God didn't send Moses or Joshua. God didn't send David or Solomon. God didn't, didn't send Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. God didn't send any prophets, apostles, or even angels. God sent forth his son. Imagine you're a criminal. One who has avoided the law for some time, but you're finally caught. You're arrested, you're charged, convic convicted, and sentenced. The punishment, the punishment fits the crime. The punishment that this man received was death. You have exhausted all of your appeals in a fuel effort for a reduced sentence. So there you are on death row, awaiting your day of execution. You can't help but get quiet when you hear footsteps outside your door as you wonder if they're coming for you. And indeed, indeed one day, those footsteps stop outside your cell. The door opens. And to, to your surprise, in walks the judge who sentenced you. He explains his heart went out to you as he heard your case. He wanted to do something to help you. However, you were guilty. And justice demanded that you be convicted. But today he said he came to tell you that you are free to go. The judge tells you that someone had to pay your penalty. And when he told you that this fellow, when he told this fellow about your situation, he volunteered to take your place. But he says to you, however, I want you to know, this man has done nothing wrong. This man is totally innocent. In fact, he's the best person I've ever met. I ought to know. 
is my son. That's the good news of the gospel that we find in John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 1 John 4 tells us that in this love of God, was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then 1 John 4 says, we have seen and testify. The Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. The manner of the incarnation is good news. Upon hearing the sounds in the dark, a little girl became afraid, couldn't sleep, and she rushed into her parents' room begging to sleep with them. But instead they prayed with her and sent her back to her room and told her to remember God was with her. So the little girl went back to her room and tried to sleep, but it didn't work. So she went back to her parents' room only to be sent away with a reminder. Didn't we pray with you? Didn't we tell you that God was with you? What's the problem? And the little girl's reply was classic. But God doesn't have any skin on him. Before the incarnation, every method God used to declare his love was misunderstood. God didn't have any skin, so his expressions of love were reviewed as acts of tyranny. In the incarnation, God perfectly declared his love for us. He spoke in a language we could understand. He did so by becoming one of us. And Paul puts it this way. When the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. What is emphasized in these verses is that the one whom God sent to accomplish our redemption was perfectly qualified to do so. He was God's son. He was also born of the human mother so that he was human as well as divine. The one and only God-man. And he was born under the law, that is, of a Jewish mother, into the Jewish nation, subject to the Jewish law. And throughout his life, he submitted to all the requirements of the law. And he succeeded where all others before him and after him have failed. He perfectly fulfilled the righteousness of the law. Yes, man. Amen. 
so that the divinity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, and the righteousness of Christ uniquely qualified him to be man's redeemer. If he had not been man, he could not have a redeemed man. If he had not been a righteous man, he could not have redeemed unrighteous men. And if he had not been God's son, he could not have redeemed men for God or made them the sons of God. The fact is that on Christmas, the eternal son, the second person of the undivided trinity became human in the person of Jesus Christ. In the coronation, God's son deliberately handicapped himself, exchanging omnipotent for a brain that learned Aramaic, omnipresence for two legs and an occasional donkey. Omnipotence was changed for arms strong enough to work as a carpenter. God became a human being. And then the purpose of the incarnation is good news. The purpose of incarnation is good news. Salvation comes through faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So the incarnation is essentially to salvation because it affirms the divine person of Christ. We must not forget the hope of salvation. It rests in the person and the work of Christ. The incarnation alone does not save. According to the Bible, Calvary, not Bethlehem, is the center of Christianity. In the fullness of time, in the fullness of time, God sent his son. Yes, we praise God for the virgin birth. We praise him for the irreproachable life, for the matchless teachings, for the astonishing miracles, and for the moral examples of Jesus. But all of these would have felt nothing for our salvation had they not found their consummation in his perfect atoning sacrifice on the cross. So while Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 proclaims the time and it proclaims the source and the manner of the incarnation, it's in the fifth verse that proclaims the purpose of it. And it's described in two ways. God's purpose was both to redeem and to adopt. The first part of the fifth verse says the incarnation happened to redeem those under the law. Redeem means, redemption means to release a slave by paying a ransom price. It's a term that powerfully describes our sinful condition. In John 38, chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. 
Sin is a bondage from which we cannot get free in our own strength. Without a redeemer, the bondage of sin will separate us from God for time and eternity. In John chapter 8, Jesus goes on to say, The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The only way that you can avoid the holy wrath of eternal judgment is if the son sets you free. That's the purpose of the incarnation. Jesus was born with an assignment from the Father and his assignment was to die on the cross. For his blood was the ransom that sets us free from the bondage of sin. If our greatest need had been for information, Jesus would have sent an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent perhaps a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us a banker. If our greatest need had been to, to be more pleased, God would have sent us an, an entertainer. But our greatest need was salvation. So God sent us a redeemer. God sent us a redeemer. In Matthew 20, verse 28, it says, Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life for many. Then we'll go to Colossians. In its first chapter, 13, verses 13 and 14, it says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. And then when we go to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, it says, He entered once for all into the holy place, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. And in First Peter, the first chapter says, knowing that you were ransomed from the fuel ways, inherited from your forefathers, not by perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish, a spot. The precious price for our redemption from sin was the blood of Lord Jesus. He stood before God with our sins upon him that we through faith might stand before God with none of our sins on us. He who was righteous was judged as unrighteous that we who are unrighteous should be judged before God as righteous. Yeah. 
He was made for all of us that God must judge and by faith we are made in him that God cannot judge. At Calvary, Jesus paid a debt. A debt that he did not owe for those who owed a debt that we could not pay. On that cross, God treated Jesus as if he had committed all of our sins so that he could treat us as if we had practiced all of the righteousness of Christ. The doctrine of redemption is three-dimensional. First, we are redeemed from something, and that is the bondage of sin. Then we are redeemed by something, and that's the blood of Jesus. And we're also redeemed unto, unto something, and that's the adoption as sons. Verse 5b in the fourth chapter of Galatians proclaims the results of our redemption. It is so that we might receive adoption as sons. The moment you are saved, God takes you from slavery to sonship. He adopts you as his own. John 1 verses 12 through 13 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then in Romans 8.15 we find, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Then in, in Ephesians five, in 1, verses 5 and 6 says, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of the glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the, in the beloved. Yes. Now, we don't want to confuse adoption with regeneration. Regeneration is the act of, Holy, of the Holy Spirit that taking a heart that is dead in trespasses and is dead in sins and making it alive to Christ. It's that radical change that God makes in us so that we can know, that we can acknowledge and believe the gospel. You see, we don't enter God's family by adoption. That's the way the homeless child would enter a loving family in our society. The only way to get into God's family is by regeneration. That has been born again. John 3, in verse 3, says, We enter God's family by regener regeneration, but we enjoy God's family by adoption. Adoption speaks of the result in relationship with, God's, with God enjoyed by those who receive regeneration. In his sovereign grace, 
God chose children for himself, but they were under bondage. So how did God move his children from where they were to where he wanted them to be? When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that they might receive adoption as sons. God doesn't want you to be a slave. So in redemption, he doesn't just make you his child. He puts you in the place of a son. He makes you an heir. He gives you access, access to his riches, rules, and righteousness. Let me just point out one more word in the text. It's the word receive. We receive adoption as sons. We're not forgiven because we deserve it. We are not saved because we worked for it. We're not redeemed because we earned it. Independent of any good works, God ad adopts us into his family through the agency of Jesus Christ and his perfect atoning sacrifice on the cross. So the good news of the incarnation is that in order to be saved, all we have to do is to receive by faith what God has done for us. What God has done for us through his son. If we are to receive the powerful presence of God, we must prepare ourselves. John the Baptist was God's messenger to have people prepare to receive the savior of the world. John preached unwaveringly, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Those who heard John's message prepared their lives. They recognized Jesus when he came and many left to follow him. And this was especially true of the disciples whose hearts God himself prepared. You see, preparation Preparation must precede God's presence. God's instruction for preparation is specific. Repentance. That's what he's calling us to do. This involves a complete change of mind, of heart, of will, and behavior toward him. He is Lord, and your life must be prepared to receive him. We must be prepared to receive him as your, your Lord. Anything less is inadequate. Some were obviously unprepared to follow Jesus and missed the opportunity. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were largely unprepared. They were unprepared for his arrival. They knew that the Messiah was coming. They even knew where he was where he would be born. Yet, when word came that the Savior had been born, they made no effort. They made no effort 
to join him. Preferring instead the religious rituals. If you are unprepared, you too will miss the opportunity to experience Jesus. You may practice religion, but you will miss God. Only holy, sovereign, and gracious God could step out of eternity into time and do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And that's exactly, that's exactly what God did for us through Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Grant, us, grant to us your mercy, O oh God, and make us your people as we have drawn closer to our Savior's birth. Keep us whole in mind and body. Enable us to walk each day in holiness and purity. May our lives express such devotion to the faith that has claimed us, that there is no unwavering testimony about us, but instead that our witness of love will be clearly understood. May we be clothed in the Lord Jesus Christ and filled with the Holy Spirit. Help us to stand watchful and ready until your dear Son is revealed in the fullness of his glory. And may we rejoice in his presence, known to us today and forever. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.